0: Future Proof with Jonathan McRae.
1: Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk.
0: Hello and welcome to Future Proof the Podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McCrae. In this episode, we're going to be talking about earthquakes, among the most terrifying natural occurrences on the planet, responsible the world over for catastrophic destruction and death. But not here. While we do have earthquakes in Ireland, and did only last month actually. They are barely felt by the population in contrast to this year's disaster in Turkey and Syria. Why is that? New research seems to have an answer and we'll be speaking to Chris Bean from the Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies all about it. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news and joining me is Dr. Lara Dungan and Owen Murphy, science communicator. You're both very welcome. Our first story, Lara, has to do with endometriosis.
1: So this is a paper that was published in Science Translational Medicine, and it came from a Japanese university called Nagoya University. And it's particularly interesting because endometriosis affects up to 10% of women. And the basic concept is what we call retrograde menstruation, which sounds like two kind of long words for what it means is Your period goes the wrong way. So instead of going out the way it should do, it goes back up your fallopian tubes and out into your pelvic cavity, essentially. And these endometrial cells then attach in all the places that they shouldn't. So including your ovaries, but it can be on your liver, on your bowel, on your wall, inside your pelvis, all over the place. And they grow into very painful endometrial plaques. And women can be crippled with the pain of this. It can also cause massive issues at subfertility. And it's very difficult to treat. So one of the ways is to treat hormonally, so with contraceptive type treatment. Another way is surgery, which obviously nobody wants to resort to. But this research in Japan is very exciting. They looked at 155 women with endometriosis and they found that 64% of them had colonization with a type of bacteria called Fusobacterium inside their uterus. But when they looked at the controls, only 7% of women who didn't have endometriosis had this Fusobacterium. So that's already quite a striking result and it's a pretty well-powered study But they then went on to take a mouse model and they inoculated half of the mice with fusobacterium and the other half without. This is a model that was that had a tendency towards endometriosis. And the half that were inoculated had a much higher burden of plaques and a much larger volume of endometriosis than the control group. And when they treated them vaginally with quite a simple antibiotic, Uh, they got an awful lot better. So they're doing now a clinical trial in women because it's a very simple treatment. We're just talking about a vaginal antibiotic here. So really, really easy to treat. The antibiotic that they used in the mice is called metronidazole. So it's incredibly common. It's used all the time in hospitals and GP surgeries around the world. And they're doing a trial now to see if this could help women, even if it could help a small amount. It would be fantastic because this is a crippling disease and it's so fascinating to look at what might have caused it. They think that these bacteria are causing cytokines or chemicals to be upregulated that change the endometrial cells to be more fibrillin and more able to invade into different organs so if this can work it would be fascinating and an easy cheap treatment
0: and that's already available of course which is which is phenomenal because it doesn't mean FDA approval and clinical trials and all that um what about um, a bacterial uh, vaccine also potentially Um, available if we if we've identified a bacteria that could be you know at least one of the reasons why endometriosis um, develops.
1: That's a fascinating idea because obviously one of the big things that endometriosis would be to catch it early or to stop it early because once there is a development there you would imagine and, and this has not been proven but you would imagine that the antibiotic would be less effective so it would be fascinating to know if you could maybe inoculate against this or vaccinate against this early to stop the development full stop.
0: In terms of you know bacteria, we are of course hugely dependent on bacteria um, as a sort of symbiotic species. They live on us, and, and they are often really important in digesting things that uh, we can't digest, and so on. Do is there danger of, uh, of of doing harm by applying a bacteria, or with you know by getting rid of a bacterial species that we don't know the full function of yet?
1: Yeah, so I mean, obviously, there are some consequences to taking antibiotics. One of the biggest consequences is the worry of antibiotic resistance. So if you don't completely eliminate a pathogenic bacteria, the ones that remain are then resistant to the antibiotic. And another one is, as you say, getting rid of commensals that we may need. But it's something that we have done time and time again, we treat people with antibiotics over and over again, and the vast majority of the time, it's safe. So if it works, it's effective and deemed to be safe, then I don't see why we shouldn't.
0: Amazing. Oh, and our second story has to do with a holy crocodile.
2: <laughs> yes, Jonathan. This is a fascinating story documenting what is believed to be the first ever recorded case of a virgin birth in crocodiles. Now, the idea of a virgin birth is more technically referred to as parthenogenesis, where a female egg can develop without fertilization, so essentially no contact with a male gamete. Or in this case, because female crocodiles can reproduce sexually, they refer to it as facultative parthenogenesis. So, Once considered rare, this form of reproduction has in recent years been documented in multiple vertebrates, including birds, snakes, lizards, sharks, and some rays, but was yet to be found in crocodiles. Earlier this month, researchers based in Virginia Tech in the U.S. published their findings in biology letters. Now, Warren Booth, who is one of the co-authors on the paper and has been a lead voice in the study of parthenogenesis for over a decade, was brought into research a clutch of 14 eggs which were discovered in the enclosure of an 18-year-old female American crocodile in a reptile park in Costa Rica. So nothing strange about a female crocodile laying eggs. The only issue here was that this female crocodile had been kept separate from all males for 16 years. Now, 16 years was a bit strange. So that led to- Long time to
0: gestate. (laughs) No,
2: no. So um, what they did was they took the 14 eggs, seven of them appeared viable, and were incubated artificially for three months. Now, after three months, um, they found that all of the eggs had failed to hatch, so they, were, uh, they did some further investigation on it. And what they found is that within one of the eggs, there was one fully formed non-viable fetus. Um, using whole genome sequencing and bioinformatic analysis, they found that the offspring had identical genotypes to the mother, greater than 99.9%, and there were no paternal DNA present. So this fetus was completely formed from the DNA of the female crocodile. She cloned herself, essentially. Essentially, yeah. We're, we're really going into sci-fi territory here now, but this is what happened. Now, this is, they think, the first evidence of facultative parthenogenesis in crocodiles. Um, like I said, it's been found in other um, vertebrates. Now, why we're so interested, and this is so important, is because although birds and crocodiles may look very different now, they share a common ancestral pathway, that being they were referred to as archosaurs, and the ancestors of modern birds being dinosaurs. So now that we've documented this type of reproduction, both birds and crocodiles, we potentially have an insight into the reproductive capabilities of their common extinct relatives, the dinosaurs. That's very cool. It is very um, cool. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I
0: suppose this, this being the first ever case documented, perhaps it has happened before, but it makes it a, a very significant finding, I'm sure.
2: That, um, that's an excellent point, Jonathan. Yeah, And I, I did some of the extra papers I read around this. They have flagged that because it wasn't documented before, it wasn't really looked for. And now right. they, it's, they, they can start looking for it more. And because it's a case of over the past 20 years, the kind of the genomic level of technical ability that they have now, there is a chance it's happening more often, but it's uh, very interesting, very interesting stuff.
0: Yeah, very cool. I mean, like, because if, if uh, you find a female that is in the company of males and then they uh, produce eggs, you just assume presumably that, that they were fertilized by the male. It may be the case. It, it may not weren't. be the
2: case, but there actually was one other thing thrown in there. that They had to distinguish between that. There's a case of long-term sperm storage and that in rattlesnakes, they found that a, rattlesnake, a female rattlesnake kept separate for six years, got pregnant because she was able to store a sperm for that long. So they had to distinguish between that when going down this road. Wow.
0: <laughs> kind of does away with the need for a sperm bank if you can hold uh, on to Yeah, it's just a live sperm, it?
2: sperm bank, isn't
0: it? Now, um, our third story ushers in the end of Doctors.
1: it does absolutely this is a story I was quite interested by myself because it talks all about consent and so consent is something that is vitally important in our everyday lives but it's extraordinarily important in medicine because if you want to do any procedure and I have just spent the last entire week doing the consents on people you need to get consent but consent isn't enough alone it has to be informed consent someone has to know what it is they're agreeing to and I have watched people consent individuals in the past as a student and and been very confident that the person signing the form had no idea what they were signing, but they were scared because doctors are scary or they were sick or they were intimidated. And so they just, I don't mean actively intimidated, I should say. Sorry. No. It wasn't like someone threatening to, you know, kneecap them, but people will sign things without understanding what it is they're signing. And this new research used a chat bot. So this is research that was done between the University of California and also a, a private company called Invite Corporation, who's a genetics company. And they used a chat bot, which is essentially an interactive online bot that you type into and it replies to you. To do the consent process, some consents are faster than others. Consents for, say, for instance, being part of a clinical trial or being part of a large consortium can take a couple of hours. And they got um, half of the 72 families to do it via the chatbot, and the other half to do it with the doctors. And it took 76 minutes with the doctors and only 44 minutes with the chatbot. So it was already a significant time reduction. Well, not
0: just a time reduction. It was time reduction for the patient, it was uh, time uh, eradication for the clinician.
1: Well, that's exactly it. And they actually didn't do any financial um, testing on this to see if it was a massive financial benefit. Well, you can only imagine it was because that's you know an hour, over an hour that that they have back. They also looked to see about understanding. And this is something that that we don't do. I mean, in theory, we do. In theory, we say, what is your understanding of this procedure? But this was a test. It was a 10-question test. And 96% of people who had gone via the chatbot were able to get a pass mark in it and the 4% who didn't could be referred on to a person to speak about what it is they didn't understand
0: and explain so actually- through puppets
1: And explain through puppets, which is what we all do. Exactly.
0: When mommy mommy has a baby.
1: Yeah, when a man and a woman very much love each other. But this I just think is fascinating because it could be done out of hours. It suits people. People are able to sit down at home in their own time and do this. And they come in ready to go and primed with any questions they have. And I just wonder if this something could be rolled out a bit more in medicine, get people to have an online learning tool in advance and then still be there for any questions. But this was a real success. So if they could find a way to roll this out in a more general way, it would be fantastic.
0: Absolutely. And um, just being in a doctor's surgery, you're so conscious that you know, certainly as an Irish person, you're like I shouldn't be taking up this doctor's time. You know, you might you might you might be literally spurting out blood from a severed wrist, <laughs> and you'd be like, "I'm so sorry, I just no, look, no, you, you, you I'm sure there's no more on your of your sheet. time." Yeah, exactly. So, so uh, uh, being able to do that where you're you don't feel that pressure to say yes when you're asked if you understand is 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 really key. It's brilliant, uh, Owen. Our uh, final
2: story. Yes. So, Jonathan, this is a potentially really important. Uh, a piece of research coming out of the university of sydney looking at ways of using scent as a form of pest control so research published last month in nature sustainability investigated the use of a specific method known as olfactory misinformation or odor camouflage so essentially you saturate an area in a specific odor making it difficult for the pest to find out find what it is they're, they're searching for now uh, globally it's estimated that anywhere up to 40 percent of crop production is lost to pests In Australia, yeah, 40%. I mean, we could probably go into food costs and stuff at the moment, and this is a big part of that as well. But in Australia specifically, where the research carried out, they have major issues due to extreme weather conditions. And they have a massive problem with plagues of mice infesting fields with crops, such as wheat, and digging the seeds out before they can germinate. In some cases, you could have as many as a 1,000 mice per hectare. Now, I'm not an expert on hectares, so I did the numbers and... One hectare is approximately two thirds the size of Crow Park, which means that's a lot of mice on a, on a Gaelic field, all right? Yeah. So, <laughs> a lot of mice. So, the response is normally in where you get these infestations just use more pesticides. And in many cases, this isn't effective and kind of goes against the sustainable agriculture goals which countries around the world are striving to achieve. So, what the paper looked at was using this technique, and it's proved successful previously in confusing invasive predators who are hunting threatened bird nests in New Zealand. So what they did was before and during sowing wheat seeds, scientists sprayed a land plot infested with mice with wheat germ oil. Now, this is a byproduct of wheat processing with that is usually used in cosmetics and animal feeds, and it's the oil itself which is the most nutritious part of the seed, and it's the smell that the mice go after. So what they found is that by spraying this all around, in the first test where they sprayed it before seeds were sowed, they found 74% fewer mouse holes. In the second test where they sprayed it with the sowing of the seeds, they found 63% fewer mouse holes. So mouse holes indicating that the, seed, the mouse, mice were borrowing from the seeds. Now, this is massively important when we look at the kind of problem of food around the world. It does come with some challenges. It won't get rid of pesticides, but I think what this is shown here is that You know, you have a method of um, a technique that they've come across, which is simple, is ethical and potentially cost effective method of reducing the impact of pests.
0: Now, just walk me through that that last bit again. They've camouflaged the smell of wheat with
2: wheat. With wheat. Yeah. So imagine and they have sprayed wheat everywhere, but not just wheat. It's the part of the wheat which attracts the mice. And because the mice then go in, investigate, look for it. And they find that actually this is not leading me to the seeds. They have an inbuilt sense that this is a waste of time and they need to search for another food source, which is easier to find. So it's a misinformation and it tricks them. And they're, they're, they have a limited time and they have a, yeah,
0: it's crazy. Extraordinarily clever, isn't it? (laughs) Wow. That's brilliant. Um, Let me know what you think of those. You can text us 53106. uh, Owen and Laura, thanks very much. Generally speaking, Ireland is a pretty safe place to live. For example, when it comes to natural phenomena, insects, animals, there are very few things that can do you serious harm. No snakes, no bears, no wolves, no venomous species. Our spiders are 99.9% benign. And we also are very, very lucky in that we don't often experience earthquakes. And even if it is detected, it pales in comparison even to the UK. Why is that? Well, Chris Bean is from the Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies. He joins me now, Chris. Um, this is—it's uh, not true to say that we don't get earthquakes because we had earthquake only as recently as last month, right? A two point five or something like that.
3: Yes, Jonathan. So we do—we do get earthquakes. That's for sure. Um, but we certainly don't get as many as uh, we see in other places. Yeah, last month we had a magnitude two point five in Donegal. It was felt. Um, all over Donegal and, and further afield. And we had oh, more than 400 felt reports, people writing in about it. Um, so it was one of the biggest ones we've seen in a while. But uh, and Donegal is one of the most active parts of the island. So, um, so that's not a, a surprise. But, uh, but in general, as you, you've said in your intro piece there, yeah, we, we do not get as many earthquakes as we might expect when in comparison to, to Britain, for example.
0: Why is Donegal a, a very active place for earthquakes?
3: Well, that kind of falls into the question as to why we don't see as many earthquakes here uh, in, in, in Ireland, in, in the southern part of Ireland as we do in, in Britain as well, or certainly in, uh, in large parts of Britain, particularly south, south and east. Um, and it comes down uh, likely to the structure of what's called the Earth's lithosphere, so let me explain what that is. So we, I think most of us know that we have what's called the Earth's crust, and maybe the top 30 kilometers below our feet. Um, and that's where the earthquakes occur. They actually occur in the crust. But the crust is not alone. It's actually attached to the top part of what's called the Earth's mantle, and that acts as one kind of plate or one uh, solid unit that moves on the mantle, that moves around that, that plate. And... Um, in that the thickness of that plate actually varies from place to place. So across these islands, it can vary from anything, anything from about 80 kilometers thick to 110 kilometers thick. And the thickness of that plate can be determined in multiple ways. Uh, but recently, um, Sergei Lebedev uh, in, and his group uh, in Dias. Um, the Dublin Institute uh, for Advanced Studies, they determined that that thickness varies quite substantially uh, across the island of Ireland and also between Ireland and Britain. So what that means is that if you imagine a 110-kilometre-thick plate, um, that means that the the Earth's mantle, the hottest part uh, of the convecting mantle, is actually slightly further away from your feet at the surface than if you have an 80-kilometer thick plate. So it means that the thermal structure or the the temperature um, in the crust below our feet is different in different places. And as you know, if we heat something up, it tends to become a bit softer, a bit weaker. And so the the thermal structure, the temperature in the lithosphere seems to be controlling the strength of the lithosphere. Uh, and that may be what's causing the, cha- the the variations in the in the distribution of earthquakes from place to place. How, so, how do you
0: how do you determine something like the depth of the the mantle? Because you you know you're talking about rock that is, you know, as you say, like nearly uh, in total nearly 200 kilometers down. Like that's that's a lot of
3: rock. It's a lot of rock. So the way it's done is that we have continuously recording instruments called seismometers. They're running 24 seven. And they're there to detect earthquakes and to locate earthquakes primarily. But they can also be used to image the structure of the Earth, not unlike some of the tomographic images or CAT scan images that we would see in medicine. So if there's a distant earthquake, uh, let's say in the, in the Philippines, for example, that earthquake will travel uh, around the Earth through the earth and around the earth. And the waves from that earthquake will go through these seismic stations that are uh, recording in Ireland and in Britain and other places. Right. And the waves from that earthquake uh, can actually be used to image the ground beneath those seismic stations. That's and very so we're cool. Actually to, we're able to build up an image of, of the, the speed at which the waves are traveling in the different parts of the earth. And the speed at which the waves are traveling are somewhat controlled by the temperature uh, of that material. The the warmer that material, the hotter that material, the slower the waves are uh, in general. So by building up a, a picture of the variations of the wave speed in different locations, we can actually estimate the variations in the temperature and then the thickness of this this boundary layer, this plate, basically beneath our feet, which, which, um, although we're not in a very seismically active zone in general in this part of northwest Europe, this plate does have differences in its thickness from place to place, and that is affecting the amount of earthquakes we're getting from place to place locally.
0: And um, I always thought that um, earthquakes tended to happen around that um, sort of ring. Uh, of fire, isn't that what it's called? Um, yeah. The sort of uh, arch in between Africa and uh, South America. Is that, um, I- I- is that where the earthquakes start, or how do we feel an earthquake in Donegal and not in Dublin? I mean, d- does there need to be plate tectonics uh, uh, in action for an earthquake to happen?
3: Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a really interesting question. So earthquakes happen for... Uh, with. As a consequence of a combination between two things, one is the strength of the rocks, um, and the other is the amount of stress that uh, that they're under. And the stress uh, can vary quite a lot depending on where we are in the world. So the 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 ring of fire that you're talking about, that that plate boundary. Um, there are a lot of stresses at, directly at plate boundaries. You know, where we get these large plates that are moving around, as we all know about from our geography way back and some, some people more recently, that that's where most of the stress is. But even if you move a long way away from the boundary, there is still some stress. You can imagine if you push the edge of the table you're sitting at. Uh, you put most of the pressure right at the edge. But if you go into the middle of the table, some of that is transferred into the middle of the table. Some of that stress you're putting at the edge is also transferred into the middle. So you can think that the stress can be transferred uh, uh, deep into the plate, far laterally, sideways into the plate. So here in Ireland, we have two sources of of stress from plate boundaries. One is from the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, And when the ridge is opening, you know, just say south of Iceland, we know that we're creating new plate there. The ridge is opening. We're getting what's called ridge push from there. And that's pushing us slightly to the southeast a little bit. So if nothing else was happening, there'd be stress coming from the southeast, from the mid-Atlantic ridge. But we also have the, the, the building of the Alps. I know they seem quite some distance away, but the alp the stresses uh, associated with the plate boundary that is the collision that's causing the alps is actually sending some stress our way that kind of table analogy i used and it's stressing us in a north south or northwest southeast direction and when we add those two stresses together the main dominant stress direction in ireland is north northwest south uh, southeast if you like so that's what we know that from those plate boundaries, that there is stress, but it's not particularly large, uh, but there is stress associated with what's coming from those plate boundaries. Now, that stress is not varying much between here and Britain. So the stress is pretty uniform uh, in, across Ireland and Britain. And the difference in the earthquake population then must be driven by changes in the strength of the rock. So there, yeah. you've got rocks of different strengths, that are all subjected to about the same stress. So it's the, it's the spatial variation in the rock strength distribution that's causing the spatial variation in the earthquakes.
0: But did the UK get a lot of big earthquakes? It's not something that I remember reading a lot about.
3: Yeah, so it's all relative. So relative to some of the earthquakes you would see um, at plate boundaries or we've seen in Sumatra and, and, and in Japan and places like that, no, they're very low levels of seismicity and relatively small earthquakes. But when you compare uh, Britain and the northern part of Ireland to, to say, the southern part of Ireland, say, even Donegal, and I'm including that in the northern part of Ireland, there is significant differences, maybe 10 times more, nice. uh, and, and larger earthquakes. So the, the Donegal 2.5 earthquake would not be unusual um, in, say, Southern England, or in 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 Eastern Britain somewhere, um, Eastern Scotland. Those those types of events are not uncommon there, so they get more events and they get larger events. But on a global scale, they're actually still quite small. But it's just the relative difference between here and there. If we
0: were living in you know Japan or Indonesia or Turkey, Syria, and you were studying earthquakes there, that would make a lot of sense to me, but. As an Irish person, why, why on earth are you studying earthquakes in the first place? I mean, it, it just doesn't seem particularly relevant to, to Irish people. How did you get into it?
3: Um, how did I get into it? Well, I, I was just interested in earth science in general. It's interested in the earth in general, and my background is in maths and physics. And it sound, seemed like a good way to to deploy that uh, that background. Um, So we don't just work in Ireland. I mean, at the Dublin Institute uh, for Advanced Studies, in collaboration with the Geological Survey uh, Ireland, we actually run the Irish National Seismic Network, which is an er earthquake detection network for all of of Ireland. So um, we, yeah, but we do, um, and we do see earthquakes, but we don't, that's not our bread and butter in terms of our own research. Um, You know, we're working on various parts of the world where we do have uh, larger earthquakes and working with colleagues uh, all over the world on that problem, so it was just an interest in earth science, really, and uh, and kind of landed studying earthquakes and and even more so volcanoes and and uh, and ocean land interactions. So, but earthquakes forms part of what we're we're working on.
0: We've um, we've been hearing how climate change is affecting everything around us, and you mentioned there that temperature is a factor in how um, how uh, earthquakes. Um, manifest themselves depending on where you are in the world but is it fair to say that the the, the one thing that's not really affected hu- hugely by climate change at the moment is things like earthquakes and volcano eruptions
3: um it's not it's not really true uh, there there are feedbacks and and it's really demonstrates that we are dealing with what we might call an earth system there are some very strong sensitivities between different parts of the atmosphere uh, the ocean and the solid earth there have been some amazing stories where typhoons in Japan have actually triggered earthquakes because the earthquake was just about to go um, and then you get a very you know when you get change in the atmospheric pressure it decompresses you can imagine your your the atmosphere is pressing on the ground but if you change the pressure, um, on the ground, uh, you might release then the, the earthquake because it's not so compressed anymore, for example, it's just because you get a very large storm storm going across with a major mm. atmospheric pressure change. So it's it shows some sort of criticality in these systems. They're critically stressed and ready to go, and minor perturbations, minor changes can allow them to trigger. So in that case, you're seeing coupling between the atmosphere and uh, and and earthquakes and that has been demonstrated to happen it's not very very common uh, uh, it is kind of cool and exciting i guess in, in in terms of understanding how the whole earth works but it's not it's not very very common but it does happen but the other thing that looks likely is that in areas where we have glaciers for example particularly on in volcanic regions uh maybe in 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 iceland and in the in the andes for example that when these glaciers melt they will decompress the volcanoes and we'll end up with uh with more volcanic eruptions because they they are kind of capping the volcanoes in some way they're compressing them um and when you decompress something uh we know that 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 it is likely to um you know to to erupt in that sense so So there will be connections between what's changed, the the climate change and and other things, particularly volcanic eruptions more than earthquakes, I'd say.
0: Wow. Um, And just one one final thing with these sort of earthquakes that we're seeing, do we see sort of um, relative um, changes in water rise? So, I mean, that 2.5 earthquake in Donegal, as small as it was, would that have caused like a large wave or? You know, obviously not a tsunami, but um, would that have caused uh, a
3: a, a change in water height? Um, You mean you mean on land, underground, or you mean in the oceans? In the ocean, in the ocean. No, that was a terrestrial event. So that was what I mean by that is that it was onshore, and so that didn't cause, uh, wouldn't have caused anything like that. The reason we see tsunami type events is. in general, in the world, is when we see what's called displacement or a shifting of the sea floor. So, right. and the events tend they they need to be pretty big for that to take effect. So that the event has to break the sea floor, or at least to be of you know to generate a serious tsunami. It does have to break the sea floor. Small earthquakes tend not to break the sea floor because they happen, you know, maybe. 5, 10, 15 kilometers down and the rupture area is relatively small for a small event. But if you get a very large earthquake, even if it starts 5 or 10 kilometers deep and its rupture area is very large, by the time it gets out to the edge of that rupture, it can actually break out through the surface of the earth under the seafloor, displace the seafloor, lift a column of water or a, a kind of a ridge of water. Um, because it just pushes the seafloor up. And then that water, uh, basically gravity collapses that water ridge back and then it propagates away as a wave. So right. to, to, to generate large tsunamis or tsunamis, we generally, from er- by, uh, if earthquakes are going to generate them, they need to be relatively large uh, to break the seafloor at least.
0: Fascinating stuff. Professor Chris Bean from the Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies. Thanks very much for your time.
3: Welcome, Jonathan.
0: If you were in Donegal at the time of this earthquake, what did it feel like? Do you you remember it? Did the earth move at all? Or did you hear a sound? Um, I'd love to hear your experiences of it. Uh, You can email us, science at Newstalk.com. Some comments from last week's program. We were talking about uh, AI with Patricia Scanlon, the the AI ambassador for Ireland. Um, she's also the CEO of Soapbox Labs and a really lovely and very smart woman. Um, we were talking about um, AI and the unintended consequences, what we need to think about. It. Lena on Twitter says, excellent and thoughtful piece. Well, glad you liked it, Alina. Um, we were talking about light pollution as well, that the, the skies are getting darker because of the light pollution blocking out uh, our stars. I was in Kerry last week, says one texter, and I was very thankful to be so far away from any light pollution. Beautiful stars on display. I would say that I was a little disturbed by the number of satellites we saw, though. Just another way we are destroying the natural beauty of the night sky. I'm not sure. Look, I'm obviously putting too much stuff up there is a bad idea, but I'm, I'm not sure it's destroying the night sky. You have to look quite hard. Like, they do look like faint stars until you see them moving, Right. I mean, it's, I, I wouldn't, my, my personal opinion is I don't think they destroy the natural beauty of the nice guy. I think that you're being overly dramatic there, Texter. Uh, and we were also talking about the advances we're making in cancer and uh, and how we're in a golden age of medical discovery. Uh, one texter says to think that in just a few short years, we could make such strides. My grandfather was only 72 and he died of cancer in 1990. There was nothing could be done at the time. Just think of all the families who will have more time with their loved ones now. Amazing work. Absolutely, and we we and that's why we cover it so so much, uh, and it's it's so exciting. I mean, we talk about you know astronomy and and other types of science, of course, but the medical science for me is 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 always great to hear how we are doing better in understanding disease and and preventing illness and pain. That's it from us on this week's future proof. Uh, thanks to. Murray's O'Sullivan, Simon Keane, Steve Dorn and Hugo De Silva on sand. We'll be back with more in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae.
1: Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland.
0: Sunday morning at 10. On News Talk.